0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay guys, so it is uh, a week uh, today, it's a week as I'm, as I'm making this right now from my wedding. Uh, so next week, I will have, um, at least I'm planning on having a critical Q&A done beforehand uh, for you guys for next weekend as well as a podcast. And then the week after after my wedding, I'll be going on a honeymoon for a week. So I'm going to try to get some content put up on the channel before and to have it set up to, um, to come out while I'm out on the road uh, having uh, a week of uh, mar- <laughs> marital bliss. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so we'll see how successful I am at that with all the other things happening, but I have a plan and, uh, and I am working on it and I, and I hope that uh, there won't be any uh, major interruptions. There might not be a Thursday video next week. Um, there will be one this week, uh, this Thursday coming up, but the next week I, I might skip out on that one, not sure yet. But there will be a podcast and there will be a critical Q&A. So, uh, but I'll get all that done beforehand so I don't have to do that while I'm out on the road. Okay, that being said, um, let's go ahead and get on with your question. Oh, one last thing I also wanted to mention is that uh, I did a uh, Patreon-only hangout today uh, for an hour with my Patreon supporters. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, about 17 or so of them showed up, I think, at, at the at the peak of the time. Did a little Q and A, did some conversation about some more private matters of of mine, some future planning that I have that I wanted to get some of their feedback on. So um, anyway, and those are not going to be made public, my Patreon uh, hangout talks, because they are a bit more private and for my supporters directly. So um, anyway, so if you want to get in on that, then. Uh, You know, uh, sign up on Patreon. Okay, so let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Belinda. Hubbard wrote, if the org slumps, don't engage in fundraising or selling postcards or borrowing money. Just make more income with Scientology. It's a sign of very poor management to seek extraordinary solutions for finance outside Scientology. It has always failed. For orgs, as for PCs, solve it with Scientology. Every time I myself have sought to solve finance or personnel in other ways than Scientology, I have lost out. So I can tell you from experience that org solvency lies in more Scientology, not patented combs or fundraising barbecues. Policy Letter of 24 February 1964 called Urgent Org Programming. Not only have there been too numerous to count fundraisers, especially barbecues, Over the past 20 years, there were the basics, used exclusively to raise money, and the golden age of tech, which basically squirreled the original tech, supposedly another absolute no-no, in an attempt to generate more revenue. In fact, this precipitated a major exodus of long-termers who left in protest. So, how is it that they continue their fair game tactics because it's what Ron said to do and the tech can't be changed? This might have worked in the past, but has backfired stupendously since the advent of the internet slash anonymous. Is the bionic runt really so stupid? All right, a lot to unpack in this question. Uh, thank you for this, Belinda. Um, okay, so actually, no. David Miscavige is actually a pretty smart guy. Because if you look at Scientology right now, I mean, PR-wise, he's a bloody disaster, but in terms of running Scientology and getting, you know, people, getting money out of people and keeping the thing going, he's doing just fine as far as the goals that he wants to accomplish, and he has succeeded over the last 20 years or so, actually I think it goes back 25, to, uh, to the early 1990s when he first really started working on this in earnest. He's convinced Scientologists that his word is as good as L. Ron Hubbard's and is just as valid. He has basically usurped or taken over the position of source of Scientology, and he has issued bulletins and policy letters with L. Ron Hubbard's name on them but were absolutely uh, his, you know, whether he actually sat down and wrote it or just oversaw it or just revised certain of Hubbard's policies and bulletins in order to make it more palatable for the public at large or for Scientologists for some reason. Miscavige is overseeing all of that, and he's done a, you know, I and mean if you look at the fact that Scientology is still going, it is still producing money, and it is keeping him in his lavish lifestyle where he wants for nothing, then it's nothing but a success story as far as he's concerned. Now they have Scientology TV and and that is starting to, I'm hearing um, some stories here and there that that's actually having some success in getting people going, wow, maybe it's not so bad, you know, Uh, which is one of the reasons I've put out some programming recently, some some videos about mental illness in Scientology to counteract the anti-psychiatry message that they're pushing out on Scientology TV. And, of course, you know, my Basics of Scientology series to counteract their, their nonsense about uh, Scientology tech and how great it is. So I'll keep pushing that out to counter it, but they've obviously got more bandwidth than I do, uh, or at least potentially more bandwidth than I do. So so they are, um, you know, not going anywhere, Not, not uh, they're not going to disappear tomorrow or anything like that. So his moves... While strategically stupid, if looked at compared to strictly speaking what L. Ron Hubbard said to do, um, they're not really stupid. And if you look at the objective results of what's going on with Scientology, you know, which is not to say I'm not, I'm not even saying, inferring, or implying that Scientology is some massive success story. They're barely holding on in some places, and they're facing a lot of very serious legal issues and troubles. And, uh, and a dwindling membership. But that dwindling membership is really just going down to the most fanatical or those who just can't through the emotional blackmail of disconnection. It's you know also getting down to those who just can't ever stop being Scientologists, even if it's only showing up at the events and throwing them a bone every now and again because they have to make appearances and keep up that they're still a Scientologist. I mean, that's you know, that's working to some degree. Um, The only place that Miscavige is really falling down is in um, putting enough effort and enough, um, you know, of the successful things that were done earlier in Scientology, really before Miscavige's time, to bring in new members, bring in new membership. That has been the big uh, bugbear for them uh, because of the critics speaking out and because of anonymous, and then the documentaries and TV shows. So, I'd say there's a bit of a balancing act right now on it, more so than a, than it's a you know a dismal failure. Um, you know the quote that you read though is valid. Elron Hubbard policy. The quote on you know don't engage in fundraising and barbecues and stuff like that. I mean that's in the vo- it's in the policy unless they've managed to revise that policy now and it's no longer in there, which would not surprise me to be totally honest with you. But if it still exists, Scientologists just sort of reconcile that with, yeah, but this is ideal org fundraising, so it's different. (laughs) Because we're investing in Scientology. You know, the basics, for example, I mean, yes, sure, there was a money grab there, absolutely. But it was also a copyright issue. They had to reprint those books with all those revisions because the copyrights were about to go into the public sector. And once that happens, then the material is, you know, how do you charge for stuff that's just available anywhere? So they had to keep the secret sauce kind of secret and kind of special and exclusive to what the Church of Scientology will offer its, its parishioners or its public, its customers really is the word I should use. Um, and so they did this massive revision of all of the basic books and they put out all these new lectures that had never seen the light of day. And all of that is, you know, covered under, under trademark and copyright law so that Scientology can claim exclusive ownership to it. That was a really big driver with the basics, which none of us realized until, I, you know, and I didn't see it until after I got out and learned about copyright law. I don't think most Scientologists know too much about that. Um, and as far as the um, ideal org, oh, as far as the golden age of tech goes, which is the other thing you mentioned in your, in your uh, question, that was actually, as far as Scientology was concerned, uh, that was in 1996 revision of Scientology training, and it was a total rework of how Scientology training is done. And that was, I think, the big test for Miscavige, to see whether Scientologists would swallow what he was uh, (laughs) throwing in their face um, as far as him becoming source, right? He said that it was all based on these earlier Hubbard references and stuff, but you know, that was so patently ridiculous because if it had been, then L. Ron Hubbard would have made training look like what David Miscavige made it look like. And that was, you know, that, uh, Hubbard was alive and well and, and, and working on Scientology training films in, up until the um, early 1980s uh, with Miscavige there. I mean, there's no question what L. Ron Hubbard expected training to look like. He literally wrote scripts about it and made films about it. So Miscavige really did quite a number selling all the Scientologists on the fact that L. Ron Hubbard's vision of what training should look like was never really accomplished or realized, and he was the one to bring that to them. And that really just sort of cemented Miscavige's position as source of Scientology. So that's really more what the Golden Age of Tech was about than it was than, than money. Um, yes, it's always I mean there's always money there. there's always a money motivation, but it wasn't just that uh, as you know as were not the basics. And, um, and of course the ideal org program is not strictly speaking only about money. It's also about property and uh, the PR value of looking like, you are expanding and successful, even if you're not. And also, it, it also fills a niche because uh, the IRS needs to see money being reinvested into the organization. Otherwise, the IRS will revoke tax exempt status. You can't just hoard the money that you make as a nonprofit. So, that's, that's kind of how I see all of that. So, I don't necessarily know that the bionic runt is really so stupid in some ways. Um, it's easier to, as a critic to call him out on things when he is clearly and blatantly violating Hubbard's rules and policies, um, but the Scientologists aren't listening, you know, they, they're going along with it. And, um, and Miscavige has really mastered the art of playing them. Uh, he's got them all duped, you know, and uh, that's, that's really kind of the bottom line on all that. So I hope that, I don't know, that's, that's some feedback from me and, in response to that. I hope that answers your, answers your question. Martin Blue. Increasingly, over the past several months, I've noticed an increase in expressions of religious and political belief from friends and acquaintances. These mostly come in the form of encouragement or commiseration. I've been or will be praying for you and similar sentiments. Turn to the Lord and he will help you through your difficulty. Sometimes there is an accompanying lecture on some variation of religious dogma. I'm beginning to take offense at the presumptuous nature of these communications. I'm being given a lecture with the assumption that I accept and agree with the underlying belief, or that common courtesy obligates me to listen. The sender of the message cloaks him or herself in the unarguable righteousness of pious goodwill that deserves no disagreement. I'm sure that such lecturers have a lifetime of reinforcement within their corners of our culture, to make them feel that they are being quote-unquote good people, but I'm starting to see it as just plain rude. What is my question? How can a person caught in this manners conundrum cut through such rudeness and deliver a rational and frank response? With some people, it seems effortless. They don't care what anyone else thinks and seem to earn respect for that. This seems like mature adulthood 101. How do some of us fail it so badly? Your thoughts? Yeah, this is a rough one. Um, you know, manners are sort of social lubricant, right? They sort of like, you know, ease human relationships and make things go a little smoother when you're willing to sit there quietly and listen to what somebody has to say. Um, And this is not, I'm not talking about like an argument or debate, but just a normal conversation. Uh, And sometimes people feel very strongly about their religious beliefs and they feel that whether they do or don't know that you're a strong believer or a non-believer, they feel very righteous about their beliefs and that this is their view of reality and how the world is. And so they feel obligated, really, from their own moral sense to communicate or express their condolences or feelings or ideas about whatever the issue is at hand. And to a certain degree, that's fine. I mean, in any social situation, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that particularly if a person is taking a couple sentences maybe and expressing some, you know, some, some uh, feeling toward you of, of goodwill or, or hope or something like that. I think there is um, a point where you could um, draw a line within, without uh, creating too much upset or disagreement, or yourself turning around and going on a rant about what they're saying. Not, not probably not necessary in most social situations. If you have a, if it's a really good friend or somebody that you are close to. Then you can have a deeper conversation. But if it's just a social interaction, you can simply say, "Thank you very much. I really appreciate your sentiments." I don't happen to be a believer, so that doesn't particularly mean as much to me as it does to you. But I very much appreciate you expressing your, your condolences or or feelings or how you know uh, how you feel about this, or thank you for trying to, you know, lighten my load or or make me feel better. You know, I really appreciate it, and maybe that thanks is enough to just kind of cut it off. Um, And usually after about 30 to 45 seconds of somebody expressing that at you, depending, of course, on how fast they're talking, uh, certainly within a couple minutes, you know, you've gotten the point. And uh, and they pretty much are going to know you got the point. And if they just kind of keep going, then you can just go, you know, you can hold your hand up. You could say, excuse me. You could um, start you know, sort of passive-aggressively looking around and paying attention to other things (laughs) than what they're saying, right? So it's clear that you're not really, you don't, they don't really have your full attention anymore. You're directing your attention to other places. They'll kind of get that not-so-subtle, subtle subtle cue, right, if they're paying any attention at all. Uh, And you can generally kind of weave yourself out of that situation using those kind of tactics. But if you feel the need, if this is a repetitive thing with someone or they feel, or it seems like they're trying to now proselytize to you, it's completely and totally within your rights and completely socially acceptable to say, thank you very much, but I don't have the same belief system you do and I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't proselytize to me or preach to me or, or communicate more to me than, you know, the sentiments you wish to express because I... I'm not really very interested in hearing about, you know, your beliefs because they're your beliefs, but they're not mine. And maybe, you know, sometime we could have a conversation about that. But right now, in this place and this time, that's not really my thing, you know. And that might be—I mean, for 99% of people out there, that should definitely get across. Uh, if it doesn't, you have every right to start being more. Aggressive in your communication. Um, you know, I don't know that you have to cross a borderline into outright blatant rudeness, but you're certainly within your rights, if someone is insisting on proselytizing to you or communicating their, you know, thoughts and prayers in in a in a long speech or something, to simply say, Look, I, I really want you to stop. It's it's just not cool with me. I didn't ask you to express this to me i really appreciate the goodwill or the condolences or whatever but i really want you to stop it's making me uncomfortable it's not at all what i it's not helping me and it's not something i want to um have a conversation about you know and of course it would depend on the social situation that you're in as to how you would go about you know saying something like that but but you get the point that it's putting some finality into your communication like it's very clear I don't want to listen to this anymore. You know, and if and if at that point they're still insisting and it's and it's getting kind of weird cuz at that, at that point it would just be kind of really awkward and weird, just walk away. Literally, just walk away. Just turn your back. We're done. Uh, you know, and and that's that's what it is. And if it's a relative and you fear offending them or something, well, You know, they should kind of be afraid of offending you, too. Like, that's a two-way street. And offense is something that a person, most of the time, kind of just makes up themselves. I mean, this might be a controversial statement, but offense is not, uh, you know, if I say something and you take offense at it, well, that's you taking offense at it. It's not necessarily me giving you something offensive. Uh, and, but if, but if I have, if you have communicated to me, um, look, I, I I really want you to stop communicating along that line to me. I find it offensive, or I don't want to hear it, or I find it contrary to my beliefs, or I'm just not interested, and they continue doing it, okay, well, you know, shut them down, because that's, you know, there's, there's no reason why you have to, um, keep listening to that, and if they get offended over that, you can say, well, I found it offensive that you kept communicating that to me when I didn't want to hear it. And and we're in a social situation right now. This isn't like I, I didn't go to you to be preached to or be preached at or, you know, we're not in a church here. <laughs> you know, I don't go to church for a reason. Like, you can say things like that to sort of smooth the waters a little bit, but in the end, you know, you got to put your foot down. And, uh, and that should really only have to happen once or, I mean, maybe twice with, with someone who's really kind of fanatical. But really, you know, you do that once or twice and people will get the message. And, and if they decide to, you know, get so upset over that one thing that they don't want to be your friend anymore or talk to you anymore or something like that, well, you know, that's uh, probably somebody who's better not around uh, in your life, even if it's a relative, you know, just, hey, take a break. That's how I look at it. I know that's 100% just my take on it. I'm not Mr. Manners. Uh, I'm not trying to present myself that way. I'm just kind of giving you what I would do. And um, anyway, I hope that helps. Shane Parks. Chris, did you ever purposely go down stat really bad in order to make the next few weeks easier? Was this a practice you saw in the orgs? Yes and yes. Okay, let me explain. Um, there were weeks where it was looking like I was not going, you know, I was going to barely going to be up stat or I was really not going to, you know, things weren't going to go so well. And I a couple times fudged some figures to count some of the, the, the statistic that I was counting after two o'clock, even though it strictly speaking happened before Thursday at two o'clock so that I could start my next week on a little bit of a boost because my last week was just not going to be salvaged no matter what. I mean, maybe, you know, it was, it was uh, like the graph was going down, and if I counted these things, then it might have done this, but it wasn't going to do this, right? It wasn't going to go up. So I was like, well, just, you know, screw it. So I would um, not, you know, work so hard or try so hard to, to get it in before 2 o'clock. Um, in the birthday game, Statistics are counted on a three-week trend. So I'm just going to make this in the air here, but you have a line, line, line. Three, uh, four dots, three lines, okay? Week, 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 right? And it's going to go up, or it's going to go, you know, level, or it's going to go down. And uh, I definitely saw and heard about orgs who would um, get a statistic to go on a three-week up And then the next week, rather than spike it again, even if they could have, they only got a squeaker, and that kept the three-week thing going. And then the the following week, it could actually go down, and they'd still be uptrending on three weeks, even though for one week, the statistic went down. And and the three-week trends were what was important as far as assigning points for the birthday game. So org... Uh, savvy executives in these orgs who wanted to win the birthday game would would manipulate and play with these statistics uh, and be okay with a one week down stat or even a two week down stat if the trend was still going up, you see. Now generally speaking they're always going to go down at some point. Uh, So you want to play and manipulate those statistics as much as you can to keep those trends going up. Um, And then, of course, if you um, had to eat it one week and it just kind of crashed everything or a lot of things across the boards, you'd go, okay, well, that's really, you know, it's one week that we're screwed. We didn't make any birthday game points this week. It wasn't really such a great week. But next week, we're back on trend, baby, right? Actually, you'd have to take two weeks because if you really crashed, you'd have to, you know, crash again or level or, or even if you went up, you didn't go up as much. So you were going to be downtrending for at least two weeks. So you kind of bite the bullet and you do what you can, but you prep things so that three weeks from now and four weeks from now, you're going to spike stuff again. This is about as far into the future as org staff would think with their statistics. And it was mainly the, e- the EDs, the executive directors, who were doing this kind of planning. Most of the worker bees were just sort of like, you know, kind of going along doing whatever they were doing, trying to stay out of trouble, because you would still get into trouble Uh, If you had a one week down, and if you had a two week down, that was really not good. But the executives, the savvy ones, always knew that the three week trends were what really counted. So that's how they would watch those statistics. And that's why they would even purposefully let the stats crash or not work on a particular statistic as hard as maybe some other ones because they were playing the numbers in order to manipulate the stats for the points. We did the same thing at the management level but we had a little less control over uh, the you know my statistic as the uh, assistant technical aid as the guy over all of the training and delivery for the Western United States was the accumulated total of all of the well done auditing hours and all of the student points and um, all the course completions you know that I couldn't directly control whether an org did or didn't get you know how many how many course completions they had. I would just be pushing, pushing, pushing all the time for more production. But I would also have statistics like um, uh, compliance reports, which was uh, when when the staff at the orgs were sending me written reports showing that they had complied with orders that I had sent them. And I, those were the ones I could I could have a bit more direct manipulation over things like that. So that's that's kind of how we would play the stat game. Uh, when, we were, when we were trying to win, it was really all about winning the birthday game. The Obsidian I watched your What is Scientology video today. Curiously, I also watched the interview that Oprah had with Tom Cruise. I'm sure you must be sick of him by now, haha. What I picked up is that in the Oprah interview, TC said that he does believe in a God and that he is of the view that parents have to make the choice of whether children should be placed on medicine slash drugs or not. This contradicts the view of the intense dislike of Sykes, as was clearly visible in his meltdown on the interview with Matt Bauer. Do you think this is an attempt to create better PR, or is TC speaking out of both sides of his mouth, since he is OT7, I believe, or at that time he may have been OT5? As you mentioned in your speech, belief in God is good and well in the lower levels of Scientology, but as one moves up the bridge it becomes less or frowned upon and not encouraged. If the above assumptions are correct, do you think he would have been disciplined for anti-Scientology views? But then, Scientology does not frown upon people not being totally forthcoming. I would love to hear your views on this. All right, Tom Cruise, psych drugs, and God. Oh, boy. So, Tom Cruise really screwed up on Matt Lauer, and it was really acknowledged that he screwed up, to the point that, Matt, that Tom Cruise apologized to Matt Lauer. Uh, for being so antagonistic and in his face during that interview. It was, and also to Brooke Shields, because he directly insulted her and her uh, unfortunate, you know, situation with uh, mental illness. Uh, so, So that was a recognized screw up. And uh, if Tom Cruise got in trouble for anything, it was being too vociferous about the anti psych message in a a medium and format where it wasn't really called for and wasn't appropriate. So that would have been more of what he was getting in trouble for. And and by in trouble, it really what I mean is somebody sat him down and probably said, hey, Tom, could you, you know, we're going to have to tone this down. There was really bad public backlash on this, not good let's, you know, recalibrate the message a bit. So when he went on to Oprah, uh, which I believe I'm assuming is after the Matt Lauer interview, the one you're referring to, um, his, his messaging was much more uh, public friendly, okay? And I'm sure he drilled it and practiced it before he did it, because that's the kind of guy he is. Um, so on the message on God... Let's be very specific about this. Scientology doesn't have a whole lot to say about God as a spiritual entity or creator of all creation. Scientology doesn't address where Thetans came from. They came from some other place, not this universe. But Hubbard never really does say in any materials I've ever seen where we come from. So he doesn't really preclude the idea of a supreme being or a God. What Hubbard goes on rants about is Jesus Christ and a Christian God. That's what Hubbard says is nonsense. And that's a different idea than a a God, right? Capital G, God, uh, or supreme being or creator of all, right? Or, you know, thetan of thetans. Hubbard opened up the door to the possibility that such something existed and he said in the materials of Scientology that it is only when you go all the way through all the dynamics and have achieved a full awareness on all the the first seven of the dynamics that you will achieve a true understanding of the eighth dynamic, which is God or infinity. So so Hubbard wasn't anti-God so much as he was anti-Christian. He hated the Catholics and the Christians. He hated the control mechanisms of those religions. He he, while creating a the, you know a, a very 1984 authoritarian dictator uh, led you know religious group. At the same time, he railed against other people who had done that. <laughs> and and I'm not you know I'm not saying all Christian groups are authoritarian dictatorships, but some of them are. You know and. Uh, and if, you know, you're going to have a problem with me saying that, well, I'm just going to point you to the Westboro Baptists uh, or, you know, Bill Gothard's group or any number of destructive cults out there that use Christian theology to, as, the, as the fundamental belief system that they operate on, okay? It's just, it's just a fact, guys. So that exists out there, and Hubbard railed against that in order to counter position the Church of Scientology as not that. That was sort of the way that was communicated to Scientologists. So Scientologists have this view that, Christian, that the Christian church, um, and especially like the Catholics, um, are they're the authoritarian ones. They're the ones who are dictating your life to you. They're the ones who are the heavy control guys. And they, and they use lies to manipulate their followers and that sort of thing. So, so that's the anti-church message within the Church of Scientology. And I'm sure Tom Cruise still believes all of that. Yet he can go on Oprah and he can deliver an acceptable truth that, sure, I believe in a God. I mean, it doesn't harm him or his Scientology beliefs in any way to say that statement. No one's going to give him a hard time about it. No one in Scientology is going to say, dude, really, you believe in God? Scientology is not atheistic. So they're not going to have a problem with that. You can believe whatever you want to believe about God in Scientology. But if you start talking about Jesus and salvation and, and you know giving yourself over and you have to go to confession and this kind of thing, then Scientologists are going to have a problem with what you're saying. And, um, and it's going to be very hard for you to maintain those beliefs in the face of OT3, where L. Ron Hubbard specifically states that all of religion, the the Christian religion, gods, devils, worship, Jesus Christ, all of those trappings of religion are implants uh, from Xenu and other dark forces over over all the years. That's what the message from within Scientology is about. So I hope I've I've clearly differentiated those two things. And uh, that, I think, answers every point on the question. So there you go. Eddie Pillow, what are the books, shows, or movies that defined you? Okay, well, I think I'm not really so different from probably most everybody else that I think um, the things that I saw when I was a kid probably defined me more than anything else um, in terms of my worldviews and uh, ideas and about things and how things should be. And I feel fortunate in that I grew up in the 1970s when um, Spielberg and Lucas became gigantic filmmakers and through the 80s. And so I was uh, witness to and and fully involved in the Star Wars movies um, and also Spielberg's movies. I was huge on those. Um, I would see these movies. I'd get very, very interested in them and the subject matter. And I'd go to the library because I was a voracious reader. And I would just read and study everything about these subjects that I was so fascinated by because of the movies. Close Encounters of the Third Kind turned me on to UFOs like nothing else. Jaws. I learned all about sharks. I mean, I just went hog wild with this stuff. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh my God, that combined everything into the most perfect movie ever as far as I was concerned. So I was really into the values that those movies preached, which were family values and were... uh, I think they provided a fairly good moral compass. And of course, I read a lot. I read tons of books. I was very much into fantasy and um, science fiction. read Tolkien. um, uh, Oh gosh, there's just... Such an array of authors that I was exposed to when I was a kid: um, historical fiction, science fiction, fantasy. Um, Terry Goodkind, um, I, you know Isaac Asimov, um, Ray Bradbury. I mean, all of those stories. Some of them were obviously, you know, uh, older stories. You know, the Twilight Zone, which were morality tales, really. I love the old Twilight Zones and the new ones. Um, I think there's been three iterations of The Twilight Zone, and I loved all of them. Uh, so those were the kind of things that sort of shaped my, um, my worldview. And probably one of the biggest influences on me when I was a kid was Stephen King. Because uh, in addition to all the fantasy and sci-fi and wild stuff, Stephen King kind of taught me or showed me a way of writing that I, I, I loved his style. I loved his, the, the content of his stories, but mostly I loved the style of his writing, and I just picked up on it right away, and I started writing, mirroring his style, because when you first start out, you don't have a style. you got to work at it, and you got to write and write and write before you'll come up with your own. That's kind of how it works. So I emulated him, and I read his books on writing, uh, Dance Macabre, and another short book that he wrote called On Writing. And, um, and I really, that was what shaped me to want to be a writer and, and a teacher, uh, because I was going to go into writing through teaching, just like he did. So I'd say that was a pretty big influence on me. And the only thing that became a bigger influence was Scientology. And um, I've tried to keep the good and, and weed out, <laughs> winnow out the bad at this point, And I think I've done a, an okay job at that. I mean, I learned morality through Scientology. I learned about good and evil um, as a kid. The idea of uh, committing harmful acts or what are called overts in Scientology as a no-no, and that they would have spiritual consequences, um, you know, that they would sort of sit on your conscience and, and prey on you. I think that's a valuable lesson, actually, for a kid to learn, is that your actions have consequences. That when you take things or hurt things, that that, it's, that you're affecting more than just you. And I learned those things. And I learned them through Hubbard's policies uh, and, and his influences. I talked about a book called uh, Miracles for Breakfast, which was written by Ruth Minchell, which was, who was a Scientologist. And she basically took Hubbard's work and, and kind of secularized it and turned it into these uh, couple books that she wrote that, um, that more simply communicated Hubbard's concepts. But it was 100% Hubbard. And, um, and so I had a pretty strong moral compass when I was a kid um, in terms of defining right and wrong and um, and also feeling a, a sort of a strength in, in goodness and in, and in maintaining a clean conscience that was really important to me uh, growing up and I've and I've since you know since coming out of Scientology and looking at the world at large and stuff, it would be you know it's a it's a good lesson for people to have. So I think that, you know, that shaped me. And of course, Scientology did. More recently, of course, Critical Thinking and um, I'd say Carl Sagan's um, book uh, called A Demon Haunted World, Science as a Light uh, or a Candle in the Darkness uh, was a a very, very influential book for me. So that's that's what I can say about that. I hope that answers your question. Okay, the flash indicates it is time for flash answers. Kevin Hagler, do you think the church doesn't prioritize Sea Org members going up the bridge because auditing Sea Org members doesn't generate revenue? Yes, I think that's exactly why the Sea Org does not get its own staff up the bridge. They have the resources for it and they sure as hell have the time. But there is zero, almost zero attention placed on getting Sea Org members up the bridge and you gotta fight. To do your study and get into session and actually make it Uh, and it shouldn't be so much of a fight you know I was in the SeaWorks for 17 years and I did not make one step of progress on that bridge to total freedom so uh, and it's and it definitely had to do with uh, how many auditors were available to audit me and that had to do with all the auditors being public auditors not staff auditors Sid Meow I have a question about being an illegal PC due to being institutionalized. Would a case supervisor consider a 12-step rehab as being institutionalized, assuming the person did not receive any psychiatric drugs while at the rehab and only went there to get sober? They would have had counseling sessions with licensed counselors and therapists, but no actual prescription of psychoactive drugs. No, that would not make somebody an illegal PC. Um, Generally speaking, you have to be some kind of a security threat or have had neurological damage or have had extensive psychiatric drug history um, in order to be considered an illegal PC. And that was according to the old rules. Now, that's not even part of the phrasing so much as the security threat aspect of it at least according to what I remember from having read the revised policies about illegal PCs. So now it's really OSA's call, and if they don't think you're a security threat, then they won't label you an illegal PC. Leo Taxel. Did you ever feel Scientology was used cynically by some rich people as a way to keep the government from taxing them, since donations to a religious institution are something you can write off? No, I never saw anything even even remotely like that. Um, When you're a Scientologist you're all in and the level of dedication required to be a Scientologist, especially you know the rich ones, uh, is high and so you're not going to do it just to get a tax write-off. There's way easier ways to donate your money to get tax write-offs without having to become a Scientologist. However, I did see um, people make sure that they donated a lot of money to Scientology to get maximal amounts of tax write-off. I did see that especially come the end of the year when Scientology is encouraging that kind of behavior. But that's a little bit different, I think, from the intent of your question. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thanks for coming around. I will um, look forward to uh, the next week, which is going to be nerve-wracking insanity uh, in Shelton Land. Uh, But I hope to get those videos done for next week. And I will keep you guys informed via Twitter and my YouTube channel, Uh, as if anything changes from what I've described at the beginning of the show here. Thanks for coming around. Leave your questions and comments in the comment section below. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.